0: Welcome to Blood and Spirit, the podcast for Black families evolving. I'm your host, N'Djamil Ali, and in Season 2 of Blood and Spirit, we're going deeper into specific dynamics of Black family life. My guests will bring perspectives, experiences, and insights on issues of ritual and tradition, communication, marriage, and more. Today, we're discussing communication, a subject that is often discussed but not often understood. Helping us to understand and practice effective communication is Shay Lott, a licensed clinical neuroforensic psychologist. And we're going to start out by finding out what all of that means. Welcome to Blood and Spirit Podcast,
1: Shay. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for coming. I know, and you are a super busy person. But before we dive into just the definitions, we're going to do what I always do with my guests at the top, which is to find out what is your favorite non alcoholic drink.
1: Oh, non alcoholic. Non
0: alcoholic.
1: Uh, <laughs> so, I like rum and coke, but Dr. What? The rum. <laughs> <did coke. laughs> Other than that, I just drink seltzer water at the, at the bar. Okay, seltzer water.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: okay. I don't drink oh. a lot of uh, sugary drinks or anything of that nature. But when I do have, if I go to a bar and I ask for an alcoholic drink, it will be rum and coke. But if I don't, then I always get water. Okay. I only get seltzer water or club soda or sparkling water.
0: I just so happen to know your two little girls and beautiful son who yeah. is, it, he's not quite a year old, is he? How old is he now?
1: Less than a month now. So One
0: more month to a year. One
1: more month. Yeah, on the 19th the next month.
0: Oh, wow. And And I know that, was it big sis or little sis who's who doesn't like flat water
1: uh both, <laughs> both don't like flat
0: water both so they, they got that honest right yeah. from that yeah. yeah so that's cool so how does that feel in you what does it what does it do for you the fact that 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 sizzle in the water
1: um it gives me the feel of, of drinking something else like um like a soda or something of that nature like i'm just not drinking water
2: mm-hmm. so
1: Increases my intake of water because I will not drink water as much as I should.
0: Okay. Okay. Awesome. That's a nice uh, self-control mechanism. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and I asked that question because it's such a great window into culture. Yeah. And I'm finding a whole lot of people are drinking water and that's very encouraging for, you know, the health of black communities, which are famously subject to more, to more illnesses and also more difficult representations of the particular illnesses that mm-hmm. we have. And so so it's mm-hmm. good to know that, that we've uh, taken that on and we're doing something about it. So now let's get back into these, all the, these title. Your okay. license, we got that part, we can handle that. Yes. Uh, clinical, mm-hmm. which means that you work in a...
1: So, I work with people face to face doing things like therapy. Um, I do research. Uh, I work with individuals, couples, children from seven to the oldest child is about 75 at this point in, in my caseload. <laughs> and I, so that's the clinical part, and now I do group, so that's a part of the clinical as well. And then the neuro, I have the ability to do psych testing.
2: And so if
1: a person comes in and they have some difficulties cognitively, then I can administer several batteries to see what might be going on um, neurologically. And so I usually do that for um, DHS. I do that for the court. And so that's the forensic component.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, For the court, they're asking a different question generally. Uh, DHS and private people usually just want to know, What is my child or what am I functioning at at this point in time? My IQ, what most people know IQ. So I test IQ a lot.
0: Okay. People come in asking for their own IQ?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. I had a person come in recently asking for their IQ because they have had um, accommodations based on their mental health concern. And so they wanted to see if it was still where it was (laughs) way back in the day. And so they were in the superior range, about one hundred and thirty, almost. Wow,
0: wow! And what is that range? What are the what are the ranges?
1: So one hundred, yeah, one hundred is average. So, given um, if I administer the test a thousand times to you, let's say your IQ is one hundred, and I administer it to you a thousand times, then I get a confidence interval. And so, usually, when you get your IQ, it's it's basically plus or minus this number. And so um, you can go as low as high 80s and still be in the, the low average range. <clears throat> and then you can go as high as 115. It should be in the high average range. and then once you get out of that, you start going into superior uh, at about 125,
0: 130. Okay, and no you said that, pardon me
1: and it's linked to your age. so based on your age, the test tells us this is the kind of knowledge you should have accumulated over time.
0: So, Okay. And so you said that you would like to promote culturally specific mental health services. And that, and that brings to mind when you're talking about the IQ test and, and the histories that we know of IQ tests uh, not being culturally specific. Right. Are they now? Uh, culturally specific and are they able to to really I mean do you have different tests for different cultures how does that work
1: well the best way would be to have a test specifically normed and tested on a a particular population but that's usually cost prohibitive for most test providers so what they do is they try and sample enough people from each culture to try and have at least a, a representative sample of the population but we still find that most of the tests that we have in our repertoire are actually normed on Caucasians or white Americans or predominant population, at least power-wise. And what we have to do is, when we do the culturally specific, we look at the test through the lens of the person's cultural experience, so we don't overpathologize a symptom of the culture um, that the test is saying is significant. And, so and- that's the- specific component.
0: So that overpathologizing is something that happens because white test designers mm-hmm. decide that if it's not like them then there's something wrong with
1: it. Right. 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 So if it's, it's far enough away from that baseline then that's a problem.
0: Okay, that's very interesting. I you know I hadn't thought about IQ tests in a very very long time. So it's good to have those those parameters to just to know just mm-hmm. to know. So now at 35, yes. you've already earned your PhD in clinical psychology at Howard University. After having attended, in your undergrad years, you attended FAMU, Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. So what does that feel like uh, to have a PhD? And I guess you, you, you kind of don't know because you, you live in your own experience. How exciting is it to, to have that already out of your way? And you're ready to just go forward in your career. Um, You already have that PhD and you're just ready to go. How does that feel?
1: Um, It feels great in hindsight, but when I was doing it, I was a little disappointed because I was actually behind my own timeline. Because before we started, I was kind of letting you know that I had, when I went into undergrad, I had my mind made up that I was going to get my PhD because I had my mother had connected me with psychologists to interview before i went to undergrad so i knew that that's the route i wanted to go i didn't even consider med school at that point in time because i i was sans medicine or medication at that point i have a different opinion about that now that i've worked in for a couple of years okay (laughs) and so um i was fast tracking it so i finished my first bachelor's that first two years and then i slowed down and said okay I should probably enjoy undergrad just a little bit more than what I have the last two years, because I was loading it. I was 18, 20 credit hours a semester. Well, wow. So I slowed it down. I, I did only about 18 credits per semester and finished with a second degree in economics and then matriculated up. And so when I went to Howard, um, the culture is different in the HBCU community when you compare Florida A&M and Howard University. Florida AM and is, is larger, but... Howard has more of a a name or reputation tied to it. Yes. With that reputation comes certain ways of acting and being on campus. And so as a graduate student, I didn't engage in much of the culture or much of the life of the university. And so I was just trying to, you know, churn out my dissertation and my doc, my, my work, my research. And so... I had already found my partner in undergrad, so I was focusing on school and cultivating this relationship, and so by prioritizing one and the other, I ended up taking time off. So I took two semesters off, we got married, I moved to uh, Denver, Colorado, and so my timeline of graduation was supposed to be 2011, and I, I graduated 2013. And so, in my mind, I was like, "Oh man, I was supposed to have this by this particular date," which I still got it early compared to most. When you think, yes, about
2: it. yes. However,
1: my internal drive and determination and motivation kind of said, "You know what? You could have got this a little earlier." But it's not. <laughs> so, and where
0: so did all I- that? Where did all that drive and motivation come from? You are. I can tell uh, our listeners that you are a Southwest Georgia native I am correct, and you are married to my fantastic and stupendous and amazing niece who I oh, interviewed in season one, that is Kituana Puncel and now Puncel Lot, and your children are amazing, amazing examples of communication of how you all have developed your communication. Um, with each other and with them. And all of that grew out of the soil of Southwest Georgia. So tell me about, you can tell everybody where you're from and and what that was like, what, what that community was like growing up in Southwest Georgia.
1: Okay, okay. Um, so I was born and raised in Irwin County. So when you think about Albany, that's going to be east of Albany. Uh, through Tifton or Tift County, and it, at one point in time in the history of Georgia, it used to be the largest county in the in, in the state. Oh. Uh, it encompassed Tifton, it encompassed Ben Hill and Coffee County at one point in time, and so highly agricultural. Um, not much in regards to in industry mm-hmm. in, in that regard. Still highly gentrified, so there are still aspects of town that are considered to be white sides and still sides that are considered to be uh, predominantly black. And we still have separate cemeteries and all those kinds of things Mm -hmm. while I was there and still to this day. And so because of that de facto segregation, so to speak, because it's post, you know, segregation at this point in time, uh, integration. And I was raised predominantly by family, around family, nothing, everyone that I knew was related to me you know, on my mother's side or my father's side. Mm-hmm. So I ended up not dating too many people in, in the city because everybody was related in some way, some shape, form, or fashion. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was through that collective, or uh, that communalism lens that I grew to know what it meant to be determined, what it meant to uh, strive for things that were difficult, and, you know, perseverance, uh, through my mother and my father, my grandmother and my great grandfather, because I was able to meet and talk with him
2: mm, uh, awesome.
1: before he passed and, it, and my great aunts and uncles. And so it was through them and listening to the struggle. So most of our history is oral, especially for uh, African, African-Americans here in the U.S. And so I sat at the foot, listened. I am a big proponent of I don't actually have to experience what you experience to learn from what you experience.
2: Yes. Yeah. So,
1: my, not my great uncles, but my uncles are close in age to me. My youngest uncle is only seven years older than I am. And so I could see how the struggles that he may have experienced and then struggles of some of the other uncles and aunts in the family may have experienced. And then my brothers and sisters, there's a 10, almost 10 now of us, sibling wise. And so that's the way I learned. And so that's where my motivation was, is that if it was a struggle for you and it was a, a genuine struggle, not I, I stood in my own way and right. I was because of that, but it was because of a systemic kind of concern or issue. Yes. That's how I was able to circumvent some of the pitfalls of matriculating through academia. So I found right. that making the network, leaning on that network, was quite beneficial, especially at Florida A&M University.
0: <laughs> awesome, awesome! The capacity to to learn and, as you said, from others' mistakes without having to do that same thing is pretty fabulous, and it, and creates really really solidifies their legacy, mm-hmm. um, their story because you are able to actually build on that and not have to build through it and do the same thing again. That's correct, correct.
1: Cool. I'm I'm definitely not interested in reinventing the wheel.
0: So fast forward, now you're a professional psychologist Mm -hmm. and you wanted to provide culturally specific mental health services. Mm -hmm. Beyond having an IQ test that fairly reflects the experiences of the person who's taking the test, Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: what other culturally specific practices are important in psychology, in mental health?
1: So the conceptualization of the person as a whole is really big in Afrocentric psychology. And so what we do is we incorporate family in the treatment process. Uh Um, Oftentimes when there's a person coming in with a mental health condition, we know that it's not only singularly impacting the person, but it's impacting them in every different role that they have. So in the employment or career In the parenting, being a child, being a sibling, and uh, being a spouse or a partner. And so we find that incorporating everyone, we find the research shows higher adherence to whatever the protocols might be, follow through with the medication if medication is warranted or needed at that point in time, and a higher development of rapport for the relationship in the therapeutic alliance. And then also ensuring that the patient feels heard and that the family members feel that their perspectives also valued because we always know that if i get your report of how things happen then it'll always be in a certain lens but if i get two people's report and i have two perspectives and then in the middle is where the truth might lie
2: mm-hmm.
0: and how do people generally come to the quest for mental health services is do they come generally on their own you know, and then you involve the family, or does a family member come and say, uh, Look, something's happening with, you know?
1: That's actually a pretty good question because it depends on what system you're working in. So, my system, so I work at a medical school and we have a behavioral health outpatient clinic. So, we serve everyone, but our primary aim is to focus on African Americans from basically not childhood, but early adolescence, late, early childhood, through what we would consider to be geriatric population. And so in the clinic, people can self-refer. So if I have an issue at work, Portland being 11 to 12% Black and having, well, actually it's two to 3% Black, but in the incarceration population, it's about 13%. And so having that rough interaction with the system, people have been stripped of their loved ones because of overrepresentation in those systems and so that creates a level of stress and so that stress is like a trickle down effect so it impacts my body then it impacts my ability to show up at work creates friction we're talking about communication so if i have these mental health symptoms i'm not able to communicate them to the system because the system might pathologize them and create more difficulties for me and so i seek mental health treatment because i'm having difficulties at work, not being able to process or work through the microaggressions that I'm experiencing. Or I'm having my mental health symptoms and it's impacting my family members. And my family members have been trying to engage me to get me to go to treatment. And it's been unsuccessful. And so what they do is similar to an intervention, show up as a collective. Everyone comes in, everyone talks about what's going on. If the patient is on board and that kind of model then it's a really good way to go through the treatment protocol but if the patient's not on board then it really can uh set the treatment process back a little bit it it usually hinges on the relationship between the parties who are coming in so if we've had a contentious relationship and you're trying to force me to go to therapy i might not might not really be receptive to it but if we've had a loving and caring relationship and i know that you can create a safe, intimate space for me, and we haven't been able to do that, but you're asking to go to therapy to create that space, then I'm more open and apt to doing that. Okay. That's one way to get those two ways to get in. And then the other way is through the system itself. So I'm having difficulties managing my symptoms, which impact my ability to parent. And so I end up um, having my children taken away, DHS referring people to do psych evaluations as well as therapy. And then from the forensic arena, I don't do much therapy in the forensic arena. What I do there is um, competency to stand trial, culturally specific and uh, responsive, uh, psyche valves, right to wave Miranda if people um, have some sort of health difficulty, mental health difficulty, and then just general functioning.
0: I see. So let's let's talk about talking. Okay. <laughs> so give us a thorough explanation <laughs> of what communication is actually is?
1: So communication is the transmission of thoughts, transmission of feelings, transmission of ideas to another party in a clear and concise way that is understood and received. It doesn't necessarily have to be understood in the same way because then that's how we get clear communication. If it's not understood in a clear way, then that's how we get uh, miscommunication. So we oftentimes have miscommunication because based on your upbringing, based on the things that have happened in your life since then until now, you look at everything that's being written, everything that's being said, everything that's being basically given to you through that experience, as do I. And so what I do in therapy is I try and help people meet in a common ground. And so what I usually do is revert to not the content of what's going on, but the um, emotion behind it. So if you step on my toe, I'm in pain, and I might feel frustration and anger. Um, but if you run over my toe with a car, I've never experienced that, neither have you, but I do know that you probably feel pain, you probably feel frustration and anger. So we can go to the emotional aspect of things and connect more, as opposed to saying, well, you've never had your foot run over by a car. So I don't understand how you can understand how. I feel so
0: So a lot of times. So you get a lot of that people not believing that the other person can actually relate to what they're feeling.
1: This is true. This is true, especially when there's a gender dynamic. Uh So I've given birth and I can't say that I know the pain of birth because I've been in the room and I just can't fathom that pain. But I know what it feels like to have or not be able to, to move, not be able to, to do what you want to do and those kinds of things and be able to connect in that arena, but not necessarily the actual act of giving birth.
0: So how do you set up a system with, with your folks mm-hmm. of effective and clear communication?
1: So we have to talk about miscommunication first, so okay. talk about what is probably happening and then work from that point moving forward. Um, and we also use a strength based approach. So when we're looking at why communication oftentimes is derailed, we look at Gottman's G O T T M A N. It's, it's the uh, four horsemen. And so we talk about criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So these are the four things that, based on research, people do in relationships or in any relationship, actually, not just romantic relationships, when they feel that they're not being heard or the space is not intimate enough for them to be vulnerable and be truthful, transparent, and honest. And so we, we start with reviewing those and seeing what are they, what do they look like, and then they get an exercise to identify them in their relationship so they can see what are our patterns. And we get into these uh, grooves and we get into these dynamics and so we have to identify what our dynamic is because it's unique to us because we have this interaction. And then once we build a foundation of what the problem actually is, then we can say, OK, when this happens, it's best to take a five minute break. So if, if I'm feeling overwhelmed because who, who cares what it's because, it's really when you're trying to get something accomplish with me, if I'm feeling overwhelmed with the situation, I should feel safe enough in our relationship to say, hey, this is a lot for me right now. Can we take a five-minute break? And then in that five minutes, I, as a person who feels overwhelmed, should be doing something to soothe myself, like reading, taking a walk outside in the sun, or you know, stimulation, like uh, pressure points or something of that nature, if you're into that. And it will allow you to be in a better space to hear what the person has to say and not be defensive.
0: So talk about those four horsemen, slow those down a little bit and explain what each one of those things are. So, you know, maybe we can recognize ourselves in it.
1: Okay. So I do have some examples. I pulled them up for myself so I wouldn't go too far astray because I I can, as a professor, I can do that can talk. (laughs) Um, So for criticism, So your partner is different than offering a critique. So when you're criticizing someone, it's not I'm critiquing them, but this is actually criticizing them and voicing a complaint. So when we complain, the example will be, I'm scared when you were running late and didn't call me. I thought we had agreed that we would do that for each other. So that's just saying, hey, you didn't do what you said you're going to do. I felt, and this is how it impacted me. I'm not pointing as many fingers at you. But when you criticize someone, you never think about how your behavior is affecting other people. I don't believe you are that forgetful. You're just selfish. You never think of others. You never think of me. So it doesn't really talk about how it makes you feel like the first one when you talk mm-hmm. about complaining. Mm-hmm. So if we, we So when I was talking earlier about the emotion, so when we become more emotionally intelligent, at least the research shows that when couples become more emotionally intelligent, the quality and the satisfaction of the relationship increases. So there's a negative relationship between a husband who's not emotionally intelligent and a wife's satisfaction in the relationship.
0: Right, right. So what so is emotional intelligence?
1: Just knowing how and what your emotions are and being able to communicate those. So if I am feeling frustration, what does frustration look like and feel for me? If I'm feeling anger, what does anger look like and feel for me? And being able to communicate that clearly and say, I'm feeling, and then giving a word to it. Oftentimes, we can ask someone, okay, tell me how you're feeling, and they'll go immediately to the cognitive portion of the brain and say, I, I am, they don't, they don't give an emotion. They give I'm disappointed or something of that nature, but not an emotional experience, like I'm frustrated or I'm angry, those core emotions.
0: So disappointment is not an emotion?
1: No. So what, we'll, what is behind disappointment is sadness.
0: Oh, wow. That's pretty clarifying. I hadn't parsed that out quite like that. So what are some of the routine things that we deliver up in the name of emotion, in the name of feelings mm-hmm. that are really cognitive analysis of
1: what's going on? We oftentimes will put it back on the other person. So in that example, you never think about me. So how do you feel? Well, I feel like you never think about me.
2: Ah, uh-huh.
1: right. <laughs> I feel like you um, only think about yourself. And so I I think that you are uh, self-absorbed. You know, you give examples of what the person is doing. So you're describing behavior as opposed to talking about the emotion that the behavior has solicited or elicited in you. So
0: in order to, how much critiquing is okay? And how do you deliver that critique in an effective way?
1: So knowing your partner is going to be the crux of knowing how much you can critique them because everyone's ego strength is um, different. So their ability to withstand this kind of distress, because it's really a distress tolerance kind of test is how much of a, a blow to my ego can I take before I become defensive or before I become angry or frustrated or, or those kinds of uh, emotions. And so what we have to do is have clear understanding of what that person's history is. And so if the person has had difficulties with um, a parental figure, if the person has had difficulties with a sibling, the person has difficulties with the child, if they are... An older person with, with older children that is then we know that there are certain bu- buttons we cannot press when we're critiquing someone oftentimes in relationships we find that people because i know you i know what button to press right right so when you hurt me it is true the age old adage of oh, uh, hurt people hurt and so other people that is and so because i'm feeling angry I do things to make you feel angry to then justify our interaction so then it'll explode generally and so those are the dynamics that I push couples to try and identify by looking at how they get into these different uh arguments and discussions that they might have and so contempt is when we communicate in this state we are truly mean and so that's I just kind of describe contempt. So if I have contempt for you, then I am going to automatically push buttons that you you don't necessarily need pushed in order for us to have a communication. So if I say, Ooh, I'm tired. I've been at home all day with the kids and then you say, Tired, you don't know tire. I've been at work doing this and this and this and this and this. You don't know tired. That's a form of contempt.
2: Okay. Trying to
1: Trying to put down what the other person is saying, mm-hmm. not valuing or uh, uplifting their experience or validating mm-hmm. it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what's that next one?
1: That next one is defensiveness, which is pretty straightforward. But the way we get defensive oftentimes is how things come at us. And so, what we what we have to do is, in our practice as psychologists, um, we are trained to ask questions in a particular way. So know what questions or why, well, we can ask what, not necessarily why questions, because why questions make it seem like you did something that you weren't supposed to do, and now you got to justify it in a way. And so what we usually ask are, so how did you come to the decision to do it that way, as opposed to why did you make a left turn at the light? Or instead of why, what made you make a left turn? And it, it is that tone and that delivery as well. And so did you call Betty and Ralph to let them know that we're not coming tonight as you promised this morning? That's just a straight question, right? Now, the defensive response is, I was just too darn busy today. As a matter of fact, you know just how busy my schedule was. Why didn't you just do it?
0: <laughs> right. Well, you know, that part about as you promised this morning, I, I might take offense with <laughs> that. Right, right. <laughs> I, might be, I might get a little defensive if somebody says, you know, you promised me you were going to do this. Did you do it? Well, ha- right. am I in the habit of not keeping my promises would be where I would go, you know, like okay.
1: that. So when, when I would have a conversation with a couple, I would talk to the person who's asking the question and say, do we really need to say as you promised this morning, as opposed to just asking, did you call Betty and Ralph to let them know that we were coming? And then I just leave them at that. Because when you add that, as you promise, it throws the other person into the defensive mode. And so that's that dynamic that we're trying to um, uncover. And so there's an emotional standpoint behind it. And so it might be sadness or disappointment, you know, disappointment from the sadness component related to the fact that this is an ongoing thing that the person will commit and then doesn't follow through. Person commits and doesn't follow through. And so through the course of treatment, we can figure out, okay, when you ask the question, what were you feeling? Not what were you thinking, but what were you feeling? And oftentimes people just say, well, I just wanted to know, well, that's not actually a feeling. It's just, I just wanted to know if he did it or not. Or sometimes people ask rhetorical questions as questions, um, which just sounded more like a rhetorical kind of question, knowing that he probably did not do it. Or so
0: would that be... What would be the feeling? What would be some of the feelings that would, would provoke um, that part of the question, as you promised? What, what are some um, of the feelings behind that?
1: It could be anger. So anger usually comes after the continuous uh, sadness related to the disappointment. Because you say something in the trusting relationship, and I trust that you'll do it. You don't do it. You break trust. We have to regain the trust. And then you promise something again, and then you break trust. And then we have to keep going back and forth, building, regaining, building, regaining, that kind of thing, breaking and regaining the trust. And then the uh, as you promised was more so a dig at, well, I know you didn't do it because we oftentimes will go to the, the end, the extremes when we, we argue. We say, well, you never do what you say you're going to do, which is not actually true. I do some of what I say I'm going to do. You do some of what you say you're going to do. We all do. But we never function in that black and white kind of thinking. And yes. so if we, if we have no mental health concerns, then that's usually how people uh, categorize people. But there are some mental health conditions where black and white thinking is actually a characterological thing, component of it. I messed that word up, but that's the way it goes. And so in therapy, we have to make sure that we're not trying to rework a component of the mental health condition of one person and make sure that it's just that person and not the mental health concern. So it's kind of wearing multiple hats when you're in a room with a lot of different people in uh, couples therapy. Okay. And so uh stonewalling is the last one actually, and it usually is a response to contempt. So you are telling me that I'm not doing something or you are basically angry or frustrated with me. And so what happens is the person will detach and withdraw, stop talking. Oh, this work that I'm doing is extremely important. So I'm going to focus on this instead of focusing on you. So basically just shutting down and mm-hmm. pushing the person off, which doesn't bode well for communication because it usually drives the person to try and over-communicate. And usually that just means I'm raising my voice. Not necessarily improving on the quality of the communication.
0: So, are there some two things? I'm, I have a lot that I want to ask right now. Okay. You mentioned intimacy. Yes. Earlier. And I'm interested to know what is the relationship between communication and intimacy?
1: They go hand in hand. Without intimacy, you don't have um, clear communication a relationship, romantic relationship. So in a non-romantic relationship, intimacy will look like trust. And so those are kind of interchangeable. When you're talking about a romantic relationship, you're really looking at that intimacy component. And then when you're looking at just a regular platonic kind of relationship, just friendships, you're looking at trust. And so in trust, then we can have clear communication and understanding because I trust that I can show up. In the relationship, and not feel like it's a problem, or feel like you're shutting me down, or not validating my feelings. And in the intimacy relationship, or in the romantic relationship, when there is intimacy, I can I feel that the space is safe, and I can be my true self, and I can show up, and know that you won't shut me down.
0: Okay, so intimacy in in any situation, whether it's romantic relationship, mother, father, sister, brother. Uh, work, whatever, is a kind of safety. There's always, a, there's always safety in intimacy.
1: Yes. And the higher the, the safety factor, the higher the satisfaction.
0: The uh-huh. World. So How do people, uh, how can we become more open to intimacy?
1: You do a lot of work on self. <laughs> because what happens is, because not every relationship ends well or is a great relationship, we have scars or we have residual, long-lasting impacts from that particular relationship or multiples of similar types and kinds. And so it's through those relationships that we present ourselves today. And so if I've always had a relationship where I've had difficulties with my partner, then I'll be more guarded when entering into a new relationship and it may take the relationship a lot longer to reach that intimacy or that trust rung um, or phase, so to speak. And so once it gets there, it doesn't mean that it's the, the end of, of everything and we're just settling and kind of moving forward because we've reached this pinnacle of success. It's still fragile because of past hurt and harm. I may be looking at your actions through that lens, like I mentioned earlier, and I may be projecting or reading into it something that's not there, which then will cause the other person to feel like they're not being valued. They're not being trusted for who they are and what they're bringing to the relationship. So, but if I do my own work, like I tell my patients, I've done my work. I've been in therapy. It was required in school. <laughs> and so based off that, I know where my triggers are, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So in session with people, if I feel something because I leave me at the door, then I can use that in the space to say, hey, are you feeling angry or that will make me feel angry. I usually say me um, because it takes the, the light off of them and then they can actually identify with it or they can say, well, well no. Usually, the the way it'll go is if they say no, then they'll they'll give an emotion. No, it was more frustration, or it was more uh, disappointment, or it was more you know just give some something along the spectrum, and then it just keeps us moving forward. So I usually don't use me as a uh, a rubric for it to be the gold standard, but just something to kind of keep the ball rolling.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: when we're talking about how these relationships impact the present day, many people still are in the dark as to how relationships from the past impact their present. And oftentimes, I'm psychodynamic. And so that just means that I believe that many of our skewed directions in our lives or in our relationships actually stem from our interactions with our parents. And so if we had a father that presented in a particular way, a mother that presented in a particular way, a mother that was there, mother that wasn't, father that was or wasn't, and then the relationship they may have had with one another, it all all of that impacts how we perceive our partner, our potential partner. We look for traits that are comfortable. And uh, many people think of comfort as in, oh, swaddle me, clothe me, hold me. But comfort is just familiarity. So I'm familiar with the person who's explosive. So I may enter into a, a relationship with that person because I feel like I know that behavior better mm. as opposed to that happened to me and I'll never let it happen again, but we end up later in life realizing, oh, wait, this is actually my mother that I married or my father right. that I married.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So are there rules for effective communication?
1: Do you say rules?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yes. So if we follow the... Uh, Four guidelines to not doing the uh, contempt, the stonewalling, the criticism and defensiveness. If we are able to just highlight those in our relationship, then what we do is we leave their room for continued growth. So the best way to reduce these is to increase our positive interactions. So spend time together in spaces that are pleasurable. Because oftentimes, and the research shows it, if we have more pleasurable experiences, then I'm less likely to look at your behavior in a negative light and say that it's more situational. Maybe you are overwhelmed. Maybe you're stressed. Maybe someone cut you off before you came home. And now you're functioning in that state as opposed to it being related to me or a part of your character we increase those pleasurable aspects of uh, the interaction, then in theory, it should decrease the uh, negative interactions that people have. And it is also, it works in the reverse. So if we have the, the ratio is five to one. So if you have five positives to one negative, you're good. But if you have five negatives to one positive, then more than likely you're going to be functioning in a negative appraisal kind of state. So you'll appraise a lot of these interactions as negative, that really would be positive. Um, and so that's kind of what we do um, in, in couples therapy is I push people to be together as opposed to separating. Don't get me wrong. There are people that should not really be in a relationship together, but we start from a strengths-based perspective and then we might arrive at, okay, yeah, this is just not going to work. We're better off as friends moving forward through life just communicating as opposed to being in union. Go ahead.
0: And I do want to talk about that further mm-hmm. about when it's time to, when it's time to go mm-hmm. or coming to a place where you realize it's time to go. And I also want to, I'm curious about how people got together in the first place mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: and mm-hmm. then, because they had to communicate on some level in order to establish a, what they call a relationship. And yes. then, you know, so where where did the communication stop mm-hmm. and or or morph into something that is, you know, that becomes unpleasant and untenable for both of them?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's actually along the therapeutic connection that we're making. And so I it's a technique that we use that will give the narrative of the relationship. And so. I often will ask them to do this assignment separately. We're not going to share information until we come back together. So, in your silos, I have you do your perspective as to how did we get together, what were the high points, and what kind of um, sealed the deal for you. Because oftentimes that's still there somewhere. We just have to reignite it if it's been a long time. And so, when we uh, do it that way, we can see where the stories mesh up and where the stories are dissimilar and try and figure out is it due to what was going on at the point in time or if it's due to just recollection errors. Oftentimes it is (laughs) due to recollection errors (laughs) as opposed to what's going on at the time. But uh, sometimes you see people who got out of a relationship. It's always good to know what was the last relationship you were in before you got into this current relationship? Was it five years, 10 years, five months, 10 months, or 10 days? I've seen it you know, pretty quick or no time at all because you were double dipping, so to speak. And so finding out how people got into the relationship is a really great uh, point to, to highlight because oftentimes we, we get into relationships looking for something that, we potentially didn't get in our previous relationship or something that we didn't get in my theoretical perspective from our parent or something we got from them from one or the other that we want in the relationship. So we want, and oftentimes people will look for the kind of love that a parent would give you. I hear often, more often than I, I care to mention in therapy where Patients are like you should love me the way that my mother loved me, and I say no no, 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 no. That's not that's not this relationship. And so, trying to figure out and create that narrative really is a good starting point for a lot of people because uh, if it started out dysfunctional, then it's going to continue to function in that way. But if it at least started out in a, a, a clear, communicative kind of way, then it gives us a way to kind of go back and say, okay. Let's revisit this. What made it work then? And that's a strength based approach that we'll use. You used it back then, it worked. Let's try and use it now. We're just in a different context contextually what's going on and see if it'll work in that way.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, it, it seems rather obvious as I get ready to ask this question, but I, I, I'm feeling like that maybe there's a little bit more behind the veil than it than I might think. Mm -hmm. How do you know when you're communicating well?
1: Oftentimes, the person on the other end will uh, not necessarily repeat what you say, but they they may rephrase it in a way. And it will allow you to say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And you kind of nod your head like you're affirming what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Our body language. So in therapy, I, I know the body postures to have to communicate, listening, and attending. And so those are the things that you're looking for in, in a partner, actually. So in those early stages of the relationship, when we're sitting down at the table, I feel like we're at the table now, actually. When we're sitting down at the table looking at one another and having a conversation, if I see you and you appear to be looking at my face and you're, you're smiling and you are nodding in affirmation And you might mimic some of my body movements, my posture, those kinds of things, the inflection in my voice. And then when we talk about romantic relationships, our proximity to one another, post our interaction, maybe we walk and we walk close, maybe not holding hands, but we just feel that uh, connection. Then that's clear communication.
0: Awesome, awesome. And you know, people are often caught by surprise in relationship. You mm-hmm. you think you're communicating well. I thought you understood what I said, you know, kind of thing. And finally you get to a part where you find out that that you really you're not communicating well. You they really do not know you. Mm-hmm. They really do not know what you said, what you meant, how you feel, and how you are as a person. So what are some of the right questions to ask early on in a relationship so that, so that you can help the other person to know you and you can get to know the other person well?
1: Gotcha. So I often have people over-communicate. Because uh-huh. so, we function in this realm of assumptions. I assume that you're listening because you are giving me those signs, Right. But in early relationships, you can, I think that it's reasonable. And many people will say, if I ask you, so how do you feel about what I said? And then if the person gives you a feeling or they give you some sort of description about what you said and it seems to be off, then that gives you an indication that the person may not have been listening. And then what you can do is you can rephrase it, put it in different terms or whatever to try and communicate it in a different way to see if they will get it. Or I ask people to, uh, to, to ask others, so what is it that you think I said? Especially if it, we're trying to get on the same page. So you tell me, based on what I just said, what it is you think I said. And then if they give it back to you, not just parroting, because I, I can parrot easily. I can do this, yeah, A, B, C, D. And that doesn't mean that I'm attending fully to what's going on. And so being able to give it back to you and then actually giving you some understanding of what it is that you're saying, then that means that they're actually uh, receiving what you're saying. And also ensuring that they uh, aren't getting too much information at one time. So ah. Some people like to give 50 million points in one sitting.
2: Hmm. The
1: rule of thumb is three. Okay. Three and then take a break. If three, if they're emotionally laden, if we're having an emotional conversation, I should really only give you one, but you, your emotional capacity is that of three at least. And so you can do three, no more, and then we can take a break. That way you can chunk it, process it, and then keep moving forward in that way. We don't always have to rebuild Rome or Egypt in one day so it's always good to have really big conversations not late at night not early in the morning somewhere in the midday so we have a chance to rebound so it doesn't interrupt our sleeping
0: awesome so that sounds like a new way of life
2: mhm mm-hmm. you
0: know really for for a lot of people and for a lot of relationships so is there, is there outside of the therapeutic environment mm-hmm. is there communications training mm. for people that's available.
1: So when I say Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N, there's actually an institute that talks a lot about communication. Um, Gottman, he's one of the pioneers in relationships and how relationships go wrong or right and how to bring them back on board. And so that's one resource that I oftentimes will go to for therapy. And then I'll also do that when I'm training my uh, MDs and, and PhD students in how to work with people and how to work in their own relationship. Um, because oftentimes uh, providers are, are, are very hard patients and difficult patients. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why is that?
1: Because I know a lot. And i say me, and then I'll say the patients that I have who are providers know a lot, and so they, they're bringing a lot into the room, and it allows their ability to connect.
0: With the with the other therapist, with the person in the role of a therapist?
1: With the person in the role of the therapist, and with the person in the role of their, their spouse or partner.
0: That's something, yeah, I, de- I definitely want to revisit that particular issue of being a professional uh, who, who deals with communication, who deals with deals in therapeutic environments Mm -hmm. and just being, just being in a relationship, you know, how does that work? Well, uh, later. Another thing that I'm concerned about is getting into ruts where Mm -hmm. we think we're communicating and we are communicating to some degree, but we're we're only going an inch deep in something that is actually, you know, about a mile deep. So how do we deal, know, that we're only dealing on the surface. I mean, if, if you're the person who's not communicating, you know that there's more there, then you know that that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. The other person may not know that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So how do you make sure that you're getting to the roots of matters and communicating deeply on, on particular issues?
1: Well, you'll often find that the issue continues to resurface, but in a different package. Uh. So that lets you know that, There's more to it than what meets the eye. And so if we, if we always have issues surrounding getting together, preparing to leave, we argue, let's say we always argue right before we leave to go on vacation. So is it that we don't want to go on vacation (laughs) or is it that there's this tension and discomfort with change? Uh And so that's really the only thing that's constant in life is that change will happen. And I always tell my patients that, but how we deal and adapt with it or to it is the key. And so knowing your dynamic. And so if we always have issues surrounding vacations or change or travel or something of that nature, then we know that, okay, so this is the root of the issue, not the context so it's not related to us going to Barbados or, or us going to Georgia or us going to California. So it's not that you don't want to go see my parents.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, the,
1: it's just the act of putting all this stuff together. It's overwhelming, potentially. Uh, trying to get all these ducks in a row can, can be time consuming. And so it's all of that, uh, potentially. And so that, knowing that will help the relationship dynamic. And so really, it's more so specific to the relationship in general. Trying to figure out why why doesn't the person show up? Is it because um, of intimacy issues, right? So it feels like every time we want to be intimate, you have something else you want to do, and so this is the 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 friction in the relationship. And so trying to figure out, okay, is it is it related to some physical health condition, which it could be, right? Or if it's related to a um, Work related, so stress from work, or if it's related to uh, desire, because that's that is actually there for a lot of couples. <clears throat> and so, if we feel that the issue keeps resurfacing, then that's when the person who is not the person who's sharing should come to the person and say, Hey, I feel that. And I always tell people talking feeling words because people tend to hear you better that way and not pointing fingers. Mm-hmm. So, I feel when we don't do or we don't engage, it makes me feel this way or something like that. And Mm -hmm. then see if the person will will open up a little bit more. And if not, then we might have to urge the person to um, seek treatment somewhere. And that can be either professional like myself or it could be through the church if they're related or connected to a church affiliation or some friends that they feel comfortable with to kind of talk through what's really going on so they can come back to the table with a, a renewed perspective on what's going on.
0: You mentioned the the importance of the network, how your your family network, you know, kind of set you up to be able to create effective networks in your school mm-hmm. and as you went through your career and so forth. Is that what you see more of, or what the research shows that people who are well-connected, who know how to utilize their networks well, tend to also have... Longer lasting and more satisfying relationship?
1: Yes. So in the business world, we call it networks. And in the therapeutic world, we call it social support. Uh So the more social support you have, the more likely it is that you may not engage in mental health treatment because Mm -hmm. you have these places and these people, these entities in your life who can help buffer you from the distress. So... If I'm having a stressful day at work, I can come home and my wife can be that buffer for me. Or if I'm having a stressful day at work, my friends from college, I can call and talk to them or having a stressful day at work. I can talk to maybe a colleague from work if it's a shared experience kind of thing or a parent or um, a brother, sibling, someone like that.
0: How can you get folks who are resistant to therapy, social support? networking, you know, mm-hmm. that may be just, just really wanting to just be alone. Gotcha. How do you get that person to, to come out of that and, and get that social support?
1: Gotcha. So it requires a, a fine-toothed, very precise approach. And so what that would do is you have to sit with them and figure out what is it that you like and you don't like. Where do you like to go, where you don't like to go? And then urge them to engage in those activities, but having maybe one person, because it could be related to. So if the person doesn't like to be in crowds or a large group, then going out to these big events might not be beneficial. But if they like to uh, paint or do some sort of art or something of that nature, then maybe we could do um, like a, a painting event where it's just two people, me and the other person. Um, if, if I had a therapeutic private practice, those are the kinds of things that I, w- I could do with patients, just a one-on-one. We just do art therapy, so to speak. We talk, not actually at each other, but in the same vicinity, and we just talk together about what's going on, and that can be therapeutic. Just coloring is therapeutic for a lot of people. So in a nutshell, just trying to figure out what the person likes and then going from that strengths-based approach and kind of pulling out something. Because they have more buy-in. If they like it already, then they have more buy-in to participate. And then you can slowly get them to buy into things that they may not participate in on a regular basis. But you you usually, if the person's more insular to get them to be more extrovert, so to speak, then you have to put a lot of things in place to ensure that the outcome, when they do something new, is going to be positive. Because if it's not, then it'll reinforce a lot of negative thoughts potentially about doing something new mm-hmm. shut them down to doing something new in the future.
0: Now we've, we've spoken a lot about romantic relationships and how you come to that relationship, how you initiate it and how your communication is going in the beginning and how you keep that going. And you know, sort of if you're having issues, remember how things were at the beginning so that you can perhaps reestablish the strengths that were there in the beginning so how do we apply those principles to parental you know mother ch- mother daughter mother child father child mm-hmm. uh, sibling mm-hmm. other family relationships how do we apply those principles in those arenas
1: gotcha so they'll be similar because what we'll have to do is make sure that we're not responding to that sibling or that uh, parent or that child in a way that is or responding to them because they remind us of someone else. Uh. So that's usually why we have friction in relationships with our close family members, because we have a lot of shared personality traits, characteristics, behaviors, mannerisms, all that stuff. And it, if it's not on a conscious level that you remind me of my grandmother, then it's on an unconscious level. And if we didn't have a good relationship, then I might be more in a negative appraisal state because of what I've experienced with my grandmother, right? So whenever you come to me, and it could be in a positive way, I may be responding to you in the negative way because I'm responding to my grandmother and not to you. And so what we have to do we have to slow it down and the person that that means that the person then has to do work and figure out, okay, how do I process what happened or how the relationship was with that particular person, the other person, to ensure that I don't have spillover. So the analogy I often will use with patients, individual patients, is that things happen with us in relationships with other people, and what we do is we put it in a barge container one of those shipping ones and we push mm-hmm. it off onto the ocean and it's good for a long time. <laughs> but what happens to metal and salt water, right? It rusts. And what happens then is that whatever's on the inside, it could be oil, it could be whatever, will slowly seep out. It's not just going to come gushing out. So it'll slowly seep out. So we start having these small disagreements with people and then they start building and building and building and building. Because over time, what's inside of that shipping container is now starting to come out in the steady stream. Mm. We didn't actually process, we didn't deal with it, we didn't secure it in a way. and So that's why we, we have to do a lot of the work on our own in, that, in those arenas, to make sure we're not responding in negative ways because of us. And then mm-hmm. once you do that, you can say, okay, this is you. Well, I wouldn't say that because that actually kind of makes people more defensive. But you in, in your mind it gives you more power because many of our relationships boil down to power and control. Mm-hmm. If I have more power and control in my relationships, then I'm less likely to be anxious, I'm less likely to be depressed, less likely to be frustrated, because I know I can make moves and m- moves will happen. And so that's locus of control. So if my locus of control is close, then I have more power. If my locus of control is external, then it feels like the world is doing things to me. Things are happening to me outside of my control, and so then I start feeling these symptoms of mental health conditions and having more discord and stuff like that.
0: So you wanna want to want um, to make sure in your relationships that everyone has a sense of power and control in the relationship, that they are being heard, that their suggestions will be taken, and that sort of thing.
1: Yes. 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 because a relationship should be bi-directional. So if you need something and the relationship is one that's set up to provide that, then you should be able to get it. But if you feel that the relationship is one-sided, what we have to do is we have to go back to what is the relationship? Mm -hmm. What is our expectation of this person? So what is my expectation of a sister? So usually I just start with, what's your definition of a sister? And that's usually what people will give you Well, this is what a sister should do, should do, should do, shouldn't do, shouldn't do, and that kind of thing. Or a brother, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And so when we boil it down to these definitions, we really see what are we expecting of people. And then if if the expectation is um, a reasonable one or realistic or an unrealistic expectation. So if it's unrealistic, then we're setting the person up for failure and we're setting ourselves up for disappointment which then will be conflict in a way or Mm -hmm. might not be much conflict because you might end up retreating going to different sides and not talking to each other for years, but Mm. that, that does happen as well. And so having these ideas that if we are in a dysfunctional relationship with someone, it doesn't mean that it's a lost cause. It means that what we may need to do is come back to the drawing table and it's never too late to redefine the parameters of the relationship. What is it that I'm expecting from you? Can you can you actually meet the expectation?
2: Mm-hmm. What
1: is it that you're expecting from me? And sometimes we just have to shave and trim it down. You know how you crop a picture. We just have to crop crop the picture to where it will actually be a true representation of what our friendship or relationship dynamic is.
2: Awesome, awesome.
0: That is uh, that's a lot of actionable intelligence. I think we can. T- I-, I feel it's actionable and also. I say that with a a bit of caution, because I do feel that in a lot of situations, it's good to have another eye, another ear to look on the situation and not necessarily start doing surgery on your own relationship. How do you recommend maintaining health in relationships?
1: Maintaining your identity. That is the crux of a healthy relationship is that we have two people who have divergent experiences coming together to create something new right mm-hmm. so once we come together our identity changes in a way because we're creating something new and we're walking in that and so we have parameters of that particular relationship but we still have these parallel tracks so we have three tracks in a way if i could draw it one two this like here and so Knowing that together, yes, we have these shared ideals and beliefs and perspectives and goals and motivations and blah, 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 those kinds of things going up. But I do know that there are things that the, the person who you're in a relationship with or the person that you're trying to build something with, they have because it's just the way they are and it's their identity. And if it's a safe relationship, then that will show up. Oftentimes we're told that we have these two different tracks that we should merge together, and then there's no parallel tracks going along. So Mm. we are one. Well, I won't say the Holy Trinity, but there are three of us in the relationship. It's our relationship, it's me, and it's her, or you, whoever Mm -hmm. else the other Mm -hmm. person is. And so I know I like going to auto shows. I know I like working on cars. My partner may not like that, good if they do right but if they don't then that doesn't mean that we are not still as we look at it biblically equally yoked so to speak i know a lot of people
2: especially Mm -hmm. in
1: the bible belt south right Right. and that people will know and so that doesn't mean that we're not equally yoked being able to support your partner Mm -hmm. in things that you might not be interested in but still showing up not begrudgingly not with contempt or being defensive in the moment because you feel that they're pushing you to do something that you really don't want to do, Mm -hmm. but being comfortable saying, you know, this is not something that I would normally do, but I want to go ahead and support you and do this, and then that just be it, and don't revisit the fact that, oh, yeah, well, it didn't happen because, um, you know, I didn't really want to do it, that kind of thing, but you have Mm -hmm. to actually treat yourself and say, okay, they've shown up for me in this situation, I'll show up for them in this situation and then that'll make our union that much stronger. And so that's really how the health of relationship should go. And so oftentimes we see that people, they come together and then they lose those individual identities and they feel like, well, you're not, you don't see me. And I get that often in, in the relationship therapy that I do. And even in the just, uh, not romantic relationship, just just inter- interactions with friends and families. And mm-hmm. I have this role of being the caretaker. This is what people tell me, and it's it's. I need to also talk to other people because I have things going on. But because mm-hmm. of my role, I can't seem to do that in my family. And so I don't feel heard. I don't feel. And so those are similar in romantic relationships. I have this desire to do other things because I'm an individual person in a relationship, marriage or whatever you want to call it. And I'm not being seen or heard because I'm not able to do what I really want to do to help make me feel whole and healthy.
2: Mm-hmm. So that
1: means having your own, having a night out for, to yourself. You know, if you're mm-hmm. married, with kids, I say you should have three nights out a week, one by yourself <laughs> for <laughs> each partner and one as a couple. Uh, not necessarily a week a month. And so that's more reasonable for most people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I say, depending on the relationship, if you have children, then each parent should have the opportunity to spend time with just one child at a time to build a relationship with that particular child and then as a group, and then each individual child and then as a family and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what it does is it allows you and the child and you and the, the spouse to to understand and stay in relationship with one another and say, okay, this is the relationship I have with this particular parent. And it's founded on our interaction, not something that a, a, a party I went to and we all went together and that kind of thing. And so that's what really creates a healthy relationship. So okay. In order to get there, you have to have healthy communication because people start to feel resentful if you seem to be spending more time with this person versus this person. So I usually tell people get a calendar, put it on the wall. Monday, every third Monday, I take off work or I leave early, pick up the babies early or you know, do something of that nature and spend time with just one or them or all three of them or four of them, or something like
2: that. That's okay. great.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So, So to some degree, you do have to kind of formalize, create a tool, mm-hmm. a model that you can use like a calendar, something as simple as a calendar, but oftentimes calendars don't yeah. get kept. Mm-hmm. It's a simple thing. And sometimes it may feel like it's uh, too much of a formality, but those this formalities is- can really be beneficial.
1: This is true. And and um, I say that to a lot of my patients is that when we're starting out, we're going to be going all the way back to the beginning, and so that may mean that we will be overly strict on what we're going to do. So that means a stringent. So we're going to actually put things on the calendar and we're going to schedule date night. we're going to schedule our intimate night. Um, we're going to schedule this and schedule that and schedule this. And so what we're doing is we're building it into your hectic schedule to where it actually now will become a routine, and then later it can become spontaneity which is what a lot of people look for you know hey ask me to go out on the date when it's not on the calendar or something like that
2: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. but but they <clears throat> they get benefit from it even though it's scheduled at least that's the uh, feedback i've gotten
0: right yeah and and i can really see that and the, the way of communicating you know which is why i was asking about training because this is this is new for, for a lot of folks, you a lot of times, you know, I can just, as you were talking, I could just see myself just reacting in the moment in a situation. And then when you do, when that happens, then the other person reacts in the moment. In those situations, it's usually critical. It's it's usually one of the four horsemen that shows up, you know, and uh, is either critical or, con- what's that, condemnation, contempt, contemptuous, <laughs> defensive, or just stonewalling. You know what? Forget about it. You know, kind of thing. And so it's, so that's great. So those are great tools that we can use in our everyday lives. And I can see, I can see how they can really make a difference. So I put on hold talking about what it's like for you as a professional, Mm -hmm. bringing bringing your professional thoughts, ideas, uh, knowledge, and everything into a, a personal relationship so that it doesn't become like a script, gotcha. you know, it doesn't start to feel scripted. Mm-hmm. How does that work for you? And 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 I and again, I'm I'm bearing witness to the fact that that you are my nephew by marriage, and you're from this side of looking at your marriage. It's very wholesome, very compassionate. You know, I see lots of compassion, and I see incredible communication and. it it appears to be very, very natural and not, you know, not a whole, not a script, but also very effective. So how, how have you been able to marry your professional and personal knowledge and ways of being?
1: For a lot of people who go on to get advanced degrees, they don't oftentimes find their partner prior to getting their degree. Uh-huh. So, For me, I do believe, or for us, I believe that having had the partner prior to and working the relationship through the ups and downs of the academic trials and tribulations has actually solidified the communication and the the bond that's there, Uh, as opposed to I graduated, she's graduated, now we're trying to come together together. And pull, like, truly pull these two professional arenas together. Because what what really happens for us is that we have a life, and then professionals now trying to come and and mix into that. Uh So life isn't really, it's immovable because, you know, we got babies and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) So there are areas where we're not gonna give, and there are areas where we're like, okay, we can give here. And so for me, what I do is um, I try and position myself where if uh, there needs to be a change in schedule or change in routine, then my schedule will allow me to do that. And so my schedule from the time we moved to here was able to change every term with Ketwana's, uh academic schedule, because it would mean that our childcare schedule would change.
2: Mm-hmm, um,
1: mm-hmm. So trying to maintain that kind of flexibility and open communication about Okay, so we have to sit down and we have meetings about things that are happening. And so she'll sit down and we'll talk about the next term and what the schedule potentially will look like, what my current schedule is, and where I can make some modifications where she can pick up or not pick up a class to make it at least flow a little smoother. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is kind of like the end of the journey, so to speak. We kind of work these things in. But to get here, what we did is we, we argued, <laughs> we, we got upset, <laughs> and we had to realize that we were using some of these um, uh, mechanisms to express our emotions when it was not effective. Mm-hmm. Because we had uh, history, we were able to rebound and be able to say, okay, let's just take a break. We're going to come back and this is what we need to do to make it better. So for me, what she requests for me is that, so for your private practice clients, I need two days notice before you have to go to the jail to meet with somebody. And I'm like, I think I can do that.
2: Okay.
1: <laughs> Even though sometimes I might have someone who wants me to go see someone within the next 24 hours. and I will say to them, I'm not available in the next 24 hours. I always push it out three to four days.
2: Okay. give awesome. Our
1: system, a chance to adjust in the event that there's something that's there. And we've tried using the calendar. I use calendars with patients, but they don't necessarily work for me because I'm highly electronic and tied to my phone, but our Google calendar doesn't seem to sync very well. So we do a lot of check-ins in the morning and in the evening. So in the morning, we make sure we know what's going on that day. And then in the evening, we make sure we know, what might be going on the next day just to make sure that nothing's being missed. And then we recap. And so we both are showing up in the relationship. Um, I still have stuff that I want to do. I'm going to go do some bottle returns today while she's out with the babies. Mm -hmm. And she went and did something she wanted to do with them today. And so um, I think that's where it really gets good once you start showing up in the relationship and it's not something that you feel will um, be thrown in your face or be something that will be held against you later.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That is, that's, that's fabulous. We are, we're always mining black families to learn points of strength and resilience and, and also you're having that, expansive professional knowledge and experience is really, really helpful. And I know that our listeners for today will get a whole lot out of that. Quickly, let me, let me go back to your family background and ask you if there are some things that were part of your growth growing up in addition to the values that you received and the, that social support that you got at home. Were there some things that you wanted to change about about your early life growing up?
1: Um, traveling more is something that I didn't do extensively until about 15, like once they left the country um, in about 18 months.
0: <laughs> um, um, let me ask you to repeat that because our uh, video froze for a moment and so okay. we didn't get all those words. So you you started out saying,
1: Traveling earlier um, in life, um, I think, is something that I would deviate from the norm in regards to my family of origin. Um, I would want to, and and we do, that's what we practice now with our own kids, is that all of our children have passports, even the one who's not one year
2: old yet.
1: (laughs) So we can expose them to... Um, not just different cultures, but just the fact that there's more outside of the United States than what we're being told. indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. Because it's through the education system that we attain greatness usually. And so when we have that exposure to these new schools of thought, these new cultural experiences, these um, countries, just very uh, diverse experiences. We find that people are better able to adjust to change, better able to see and have new innovative ideas mm-hmm. and able to uh, be motivated to achieve those. They, they're more likely to say, it's within my grasp because I know the world's not that big, you know, if it might be 14 hours, right just just fly it away to get to where I need to be to make the connection that I might need to make. To, to keep moving forward. And so that's one thing that I I, I do push, not only me, my siblings, my um, extended family members is to ensure that our, our next generations experience that travel, if, even if it's not outside the country, domestically at least.
0: Okay, and so for now, what are some of the, you know, that travel is one thing that you wanted and you are reinstituting uh, what you grew up with in terms of uh, social support and good communication. What are some of the other values that you want to make sure that you have uh, present in your current family with your children and why?
1: Um, the primary one really is understanding history. Mm-hmm. it been my experience in family as well as through my training that a great Foundation in history allows us to know what one has transpired, and two, how to not allow it to transpire again, and then three, to figure out what uh, and how has it impacted our ability to function. So, how it impacted us, and then how we kind of got where where we are. And so, that's one thing that I I I want to make sure that we we highlight moving forward is that understanding the history of just African people throughout the diaspora is very, very important in knowing that there are more melanated people than there are non-melanated people throughout the, throughout the world. And that uh, we come in various shades, sizes, whatever you want to have it.
2: Mm-hmm. And that
1: the, the idea of beauty isn't what we're being uh, given here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So trying to push that out there to my children and then to my nieces and my nephews and my extended family members is something that I think is uh, very important. Because I think if we can heal the hurt that colonialism and colonization has caused African African uh, Americans here in the U.S. And, and throughout the world, then we can reignite that uh, power that we have to mm-hmm. make it happen. And mm-hmm. so. To ensure that we can make something happen, we we need to look to ourselves.
0: Awesome, absolutely.
1: Our own businesses, our own education, and those kinds of things. That, and many people look at it as um, going back to segregation, but no, really, what it is is it's it's doing what every other cultural group has done that has come to the United States, and that's banding together, pooling resources, and then promoting each. In every person's um, achievement, so they can gain it. And then it's a trickle down effect. So keep the dollar in the community a lot longer than it has been and is currently.
0: Well, hallelujah. I, that is, um, and that is part of what we want. Part of my mission here with uh, Blood and Spirit is to just that message that we have that capacity. We have that capacity within our communities and within ourselves to make those differences. And so so really, thank you for that because you said it very, very well. Thank you. So, so now with that, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to for your family? And I, I, you told me that one of those things is uh, a school, which is really intriguing to me. So tell me yes. about your five-year goals for your family.
1: So we are coming to the end of our stay here in, um, in Oregon because uh, my wife is graduating with her. Doctoral degrees. And so that's going to be 2020. I'm looking at employment now in DC so I can bridge the gap so we can make it a smooth transition. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that we're looking at. And purchasing another home uh, Mm -hmm. there in the DC area is what we're looking at. So that's like immediate to immediate future. Um, Trying to connect the children with more people that look like them, more babies that look like them, because we don't have that many connections out here we have to really kind of rake and beat the bushes so to speak to try and mm-hmm. make them fall out so we wow. have awesome play dates so that's one thing that we want to make sure we do within the next three or four years and ensure that they have a strong group of uh, black children that they can play with and, and see mm-hmm. themselves and have a positive relationship mm-hmm. and then more travel so our our internal goal even though it may not be realistic is to visit an african country every year. And so that means that we're gonna have to double up because that's about 150. Wow. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> oh, we might have to double up because I don't think I'm gonna live to be 150. Who knows? Right? Could happen. It could happen. Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm knocking on a whole bunch of wood over here. So, doing that, we, we wanna up our travel. Uh, that's one thing, it's kind of pulling back on the previous question that in our next five years, we wanna travel more. And, and kind of bask in the hard work that we've kind of put forth with our education. So get in a, a position that can let us settle a little bit um, in regards to, it, it's not gonna be taxing or emotionally draining to, to the degree where we can't be available in the relationship or available to the community, mm-hmm. uh, if we aren't in a position that also works with the community. But we're trying to be strategic Um, next five years is making sure that our jobs also emulate our internal desire to give back to the community. And so my current position does that. So the things that we're doing here, this is what I do with agencies across the state, is go out, talk about culture-specific care for African Americans and doing those kinds of things. And that's been a running theme throughout my entire career, as well as Ketuanas. And so we want to continue to build on that, culminating in creating a school of Afrocentric thought similar to the Sakara Youth Institute that's in Tallahassee, Florida. One of my professors, Dr. Dana Denard, <coughs> created the school basically one grade at a time. And mm. so I think they might be up to graduating a class now. Wow. But coming from an Afrocentric teaching perspective, of uh, small class size the, the professionals look like them. So from everyone from the administrator all the way down to maybe the person keeping the, the areas nice and clean, look like us. Mm-hmm. That's how it used to be, right? Yes, yeah. Knowing that there's they're still pride in all levels of work, right? Yes, because
0: absolutely.
1: what happened is, you know, when we um, integrated, we started having the professionals leaving the community. And so, when, when they left, they didn't only take their resource financial, but they, they took their educational and emotional capital to be mm-hmm. able to back into the, 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 the next generation. And so, what we want to do is create that school of thought that, as Imhotep, he's a, he's a, a deity, but also the father of medicine. Not mm-hmm. modern medicine, that's Hippocrates, but, my, but medicine is uh, Tahotep. He said, I am because we are, and we are because I am. Yes. Huge from that standpoint is that we are connected in this spiritual journey through life, and that in order to ensure my successful arrival, I have to also ensure that you arrive successfully. So that means making sure that you don't stray from the path, which means if I see you doing something you're not supposed to do, I say, hey, brother, sister. You you shouldn't be doing that and then being open to receiving it, saying, Okay, you're not criticizing me, you're not pointing fingers or blaming me for something that I'm doing. You're telling me that I value you as a person and I see you and I wanted to I want to continue to see you. So let's cut out some of the foolishness that you that you do. Right,
2: right, right.
0: That's that's um that's fabulous. I'm so so happy. To hear that, I didn't, I didn't know that. I'm glad to know that uh, there's a school. So you're talking about K through 12.
1: K through 12, and we're hoping to go further than that, if we can. And we're awesome. trying to position it in a way, and I'm. Uh, my family has some land in Georgia. So I'm, I'm going to write up a proposal after we create a 501c3 to see if we can get some land donated, several uh, acres donated to our 501c3 to potentially help with the tax portion of things. Mm -hmm. Purchasing it would be difficult uh, depending on the quantity and the price of land in Georgia is pretty, pretty expensive.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's not.
1: It's pretty expensive. And so uh, trying to make, make it work in a legitimate way is what we're going to try and do. Just do the thing and just step out there and make it happen.
0: Fantastic. You are so busy. You have vision, you have, current practice. And, and that's what I really admire about you and Twana, that your vision for the future is not stopping your, you from being present in the moment. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, really appreciate that about you and congratulate you for that, commend you for that. So with being such a busy person, how do you... How can you answer this question that I always also ask my guests, which is, what advice would you give to your seventy-year-old self?
1: Uh, enjoy each step of the moment. Ah, enjoy every positive and negative because we learn from both.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And ensure that you continue to follow your heart's desire, which is the dream to. To give back to the community and see the community be better than i've seen it
0: awesome and one more question and then we will i'll let you get back to having having that moment that you're in the midst of right now if you had all power mm-hmm. such that anything that you decree would happen mm-hmm. what would you decree for african-american families
1: um Financial, mental health, uh, well-being. And I would include having a safe space to be who we are, Uh, meaning whether it's here within the United States or having a country somewhere where we're self-sufficient, because I do believe that in order to be ourselves, we will have to detach from a lot of powers that be, so to speak. So we can definitively say, this is our goal. This is our desire. This is what we want to achieve and do that without feeling like funding's going to be stripped or we might not receive resources that we might need or something of that nature. So that's what I would, would decree, because I think that it would make for a better world. Definitely.
0: Well, I know that you are definitely making for a better world five people at a time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <I> know, right. <laughs> and
0: right so thank you so much for for the being that you are for the work that you do and thank you for taking the time today to share with us such a huge amount of information and amount of heart thank you so much
1: you're welcome thanks for having me
0: no problem and that is it for this edition
2: of blood and spirit that's what it's about y'all have a great day